Back chat. Back chat. Back chat. Politics and current affairs. Backpack. Back chat. Back chat. Your alternative to talk back. You are listening to Backchat here on FBI Radio, the freshest wrap of news and current affairs. I'm Swetha Das. And I'm Shami Sivasubramanian. And as always, we're going to give you the news you haven't heard on your airwaves. First up is Amin Atta, Contabija, CEO and founder of the Amin Atta Maternal Foundation to discuss her recently released memoir, Rising Heart, on her experiences in Sierra Leone during the Civil War. After that, our reporters bring you a story about the recent changes in Victoria that now silence sexual assault survivors and the campaign that's fighting to change that. And lastly, we have Oliver Costello from the Fire Sticks Alliance to discuss the upcoming bushfire season and what we can learn from Indigenous fire management practices. But as always, we want to hear from you. If you've got something to say, join in on the conversation and text us in on 0409 945 945 or tweet us at Backchat FBI. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. In 1999, Aminata Conta was snatched from her father's house as a teenager by rebel soldiers during the Sierra Leone Civil War. Aminata has recently written a memoir called Rising Heart about her experiences. She's also the CEO of the Aminata Maternal Foundation, an inspirational speaker, and has represented Australia at the UN. We're joined by Aminata Kontabija to discuss her journey. Just a heads up, there's a content warning on this interview. We'll be talking about sexual assault. Hi, Aminata. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. So there's a lot to unpack here, but first of all, could you describe the day you were captured by rebel soldiers? So um, the day I was captured, it was um, uh, just in mid, in late January uh, when the war in, in the capital city, Freetown, where I lived with my father, has been going on for such a um, for a couple of weeks, and it was extremely intense. And um, we have been stuck. We have been hiding in our house with a lot of people for for those couple of weeks. For all the houses around us have been burned down, and our house that is uh, such a huge, huge house uh, and bright color of yellow has not been burned. And we um, we we stayed in there, but as the war got really intense and the government was pushing the rebel out of the, the city, um, we just heard this big sound um, of the, the voice of rebels speaking, um, who is in this house, um, we know there are people in this house, everybody come out, or, um, or we'll burn the house, and we knew that was something that they would do, they had petrol, they had a, a, a kerosene, so we knew that would happen, so we all, the, the, my, we just opened the door, my dad asked us to open the, 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 house, the door of the house, and we all start coming out. And my dad was sick. Um, I've been sick with diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Mm. So we were trying to jump him over the fence, trying to find different ways how we can not get in, get out of the gate of our of our house because the rebels were there and trying to escape from the uh, um, behind the, the, our house where the fence uh, um, climbing up the fence. And then we bumped into another batch of rebels. And then the access to come into this small little field just next door to our house and. There were thousands of people. I didn't know how many people were hiding in our house. So there was a lot of people, and I was just standing there holding my father's hand. And then we are in a place where we don't know if we're just going to be 
afraid um, they're just going to kill everyone or because at this time they were very angry or what they're going to do to us. So we were just standing there at the mercy or just not even praying for miracle, knowing that that's our last moment. But uh, at that time, the closest person I wanted to be with was my father and I was holding his hand at that time. For those of us who aren't familiar with what was happening in Sierra Leone at the time, can you give us some background on the civil war that was taking place? So the civil war had been going on for about um, since 1991, and um, it started to Liberia and then got into in Sierra Leone, which uh, for very for the very first time and um, for a long time the rebels have been trying to get to the city. So we have really heard about the viciousness of the war. We see a lot of refugee people migrating to Freetown with no hands on their hands have been chopped or um, or they've caused because they had this um, signature where they were asked um, they were actually if you want a long sleeve or short sleeve and by what you choose they would chop they would cut your hands um, at a, um, if you want a short sleeve up to your shoulder and if you want a long sleeve up to your um, so they would, so it was very we, we, we knew what was happening because we could see it in the in Freetown because a lot of the people from the villages were trying constantly to get to uh, Freetown. And we knew that um, young girls were being kids taken away um, from their parents um, as a wife. That means um, being raped and then that became their, their, their wife, they would choose. But mostly they would uh, find young uh, girls who were virgin because it, it makes, it, they feel like that's a, a, they are the superstitious belief that they will win a war by having a virgin, so young girls. So we knew, so we were sort of in a prepared mode. So most of the time we discuss at school, what would happen when they come, we dress up like somebody old, we put ashes on our face. So we, we kind of had pictures of what was happening and we were seeing it. And uh, we, civilians we use as, um, um, as a, a weapon of war in a way that we use as, as, a, as a shade. Um, so that when the rebels are fight, when they're fighting against the government, they will put us in front, um, the civilians, so we'll be the casualty that died. And uh, young boys were taken from their parents. Um, they're um, being drugged, and most of them have probably been forced to kill their family. And they were these young boys were used to become rebels. So they were, always in, I said in the book, they were the vicious ones. They, the, they were the ones that you get scared of because they've been so traumatized and they've been propped In your memoir, you mentioned you didn't get the chance to finish school in Sierra Leone, but you were able to do that here in Australia. What was it like going back after so long? Uh, well, I, I, I always I talked about this part of my life because I knew a lot of refugees. Uh, I understand a lot of refugees and migrants that come to a country like Australia. You don't really, I didn't really think about if I was going to, I'm older to be in a class or anything. Like, I just wanted to live my life. So even if I was going to be 40 and you put me in year 10, I would still sit there because I just wanted to, I was just finding something to hold on to. And because education was so important to my father, 
I wanted to fulfill that for him or for myself because I knew what education can what you can accomplish with having education. But then again, at the same time, I've been traumatized and trying to make sense of what has happened to me. Well, I don't have a word for it. Where I, in Australia or in the West, you have the word trauma and you don't know what that word means. So I was in a in a place again. I, I was still surviving. Now, obviously, in my life coming to Australia, I was still even though I felt completely safe. But you're living among people that do not understand what you've gone through. But also, I did not understand what I've gone through, and also debating whether if my life here is even real because. I can't really comprehend what I've gone through or survive that. So it was sort of a, I think I was probably living in a, in a Disney movie kind of symbol horror and joy and all the mix of it and just, and just choosing to hold on to the best I can make of life. So, yeah. You're listening to Back Chat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Sweta and Shami. We're speaking with Aminata Kontabija about her new memoir, Rising Star. So Aminata, in your book, you speak about feelings of shame that you experienced as a survivor of sexual abuse. Where did you find the strength to overcome that shame and share your story? Uh, well, I, I sort of find that strength really when I became involved with a, a, a theater production called The Bookham Hills. And firstly, when I met the director, Rose, Rose Orange was the first person that I ever told the depth of my story. I've been telling my story through the platform of UNHCR, but what I will always say is that I was kidnapped. I was kidnapped. That's all I could say. But meeting Rose, I felt I met somebody who, from the moment I met her, I felt comfortable. I knew she was not the kind of person that just wanted to hear my story and disappeared. Um, I didn't want her to fix me. She didn't want to fix me, but she wanted to hear the details, but also wanted to do something, make it as a storytelling uh, material. And for me, um, meeting somebody like that first, and then even not think that I was going to tell my story in my own voice, really helped me to understand that bringing that word out, like saying the word rape, I never said the word rape until I met Roy, was, um, had kept me in prison. I was sort of living this life in Australia about my body, and my mind was still locked in prison. I didn't like the word being used to me as beautiful because it was the word that was used to me all the and said to me all the time when I was kidnapped. So it took it took a lot of time and it's a shame that you carry and that's the power of shame because you're carrying a shame that people don't even know that you're carrying. But you have to carry that weight. And I believe that a lot of everybody that my story has to raise victim is somebody in the war zone for everybody that have gone through abuse, sexual abuse, any kind of um, uncomfortable situation, you carry that. And it's heavy and it feels uh, your joy. And for me, recognizing that so quickly and grabbing that and knowing, tasting the first, uh, uh, freedom of it, I knew that I wanted to be that free. And if I could tell my story in letting other women liberating themselves, I wanted to do that, and then I also understand that not everybody can do that. But for me, I know the freedom that you, I know the benefits of freedom that you, you will experience in life, and it's priceless. I, I absolutely love that. Now, you're also the CEO and founder of the Aminata Maternal Foundation. You've already achieved so much. What else are you hoping to do moving forward? Oh, moving forward is to really, uh, my, my, I'm a very uh, big visualizing person and I'm very I'm realistic also but I love the idea of putting things there um, 
between life and the universe to grab it and walk the journey with you. I honestly believe that no mother and a baby should die due to poverty. And that's what is happening in places like Sierra Leone. One in 17 women die through childbirth. And in Australia, it's one in 8,700. I want my, my foundation and with our board and all the support that we have to end infant mortality and in Sierra Leone because it's, it's doable, it's preventable, we can do it. And for me, telling this women's story to my community here in Australia and the place that I call home, it's that, that's a mission that I've taken to do that because it's not something that's impossible and no mother and child should really die. And I think, I believe it's a universal problem and we should all make sure that that doesn't happen. In, 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 a woman should not go through that sort of um, suffering anymore just because they, they're born, they are born in, 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 in civil law. None of us choose our parents or choose where we are born. And that is something I believe that we can all do something about. So, um, yeah, I'm extremely passionate about it. I think about it all the time, really, honestly. I pray about it all the time. And it's something I have, I would have dedicated my life to to the day I take my last breath because that is the beginning of human life. It's, it's not, let's forget human rights, human life. Everybody deserves, every woman, and everybody should stand together, whether you are gay, white, or auntie, or don't have kids, or don't have experience about having good mother. We all came out, out of a woman, and we know that experience is the most joyful experience. And I, I really call upon um, Australian or people around the world to, to really end something that is um, um, preventable. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Amanada. It's been such an inspiring conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. That was Aminata Kontabija talking about her memoir, Rising Heart, which is out now, so be sure to get yourself a copy and have a read of it. Don't turn that dial. We're chatting to the people behind the Let Us Speak campaign about the recent changes in Victoria that have made it harder for sexual assault survivors to speak about their experiences. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Back chat, your alternative to talk back. Recent changes in Victoria mean that thousands of sexual assault survivors have lost their right to speak out under their own names. Those who break the rules could face four months in jail or fines of up to $8,000. But the Let Us Speak movement is fighting to change that. Our reporters Tanita Rizagi and Eamon Snow spoke to the people behind the hashtag to find out exactly what these reforms mean. Just a heads up, the story discusses sexual assault. Victoria law reformers are under scrutiny for recent legislation change to the Judicial Proceeding Reports Act, which has now made it an offence for sexual assault victims and survivors to publish their own identities. It's the latest in a spat of backward state law changes, and now survivors are fighting for their voices back. One of the people challenging these changes is author, journalist and advocate Nina Fennell. In February this year, the Victorian government changed the laws which govern when and how sexual assault survivors can reveal their names. And under the new legislation, which was very quietly introduced, it is now a crime for all sexual assault survivors to reveal their names in cases that have resulted in a conviction. The only exception is if they are willing to go back to court and apply for a court order. And that process can take months and it can cost thousands of dollars the Victorian government has described this as a simple drafting error that they're urgently reviewing, 
But that's not the full story. Dr. Rachel Bergen is a lecturer in the Swinburne University Law School and the Chair of Rape and Sexual Assault Research and Advocacy, or RASARA. She says that RASARA were forced to go public with the Let Us Speak campaign last week after months of attempts to have the legislation amended quietly were largely ignored. We have pulled over this legislation with colleagues and partners. I personally emailed the Attorney General. I did not hear back until we went public with this and I released the letter that I sent her and I I received a response a few days ago. So this narrative that the government is acting with urgency is simply untrue and we know that because there is a paper trail of contact with the Attorney General's office and there is patent ignorance to the full scope of the issues presented by this piece of legislation. It's really confounding that this would happen in Victoria of all places, but I think what it really reflects is incompetence at a government level. While the intention may not have been malicious, the outcome is the same irrespective of what the intention was. And it's profoundly disrespectful to survivors to not have bothered to think through and work through what the impacts of the legislative changes would be. Clearly, the lawmakers did not do their jobs and there hasn't actually been an apology at this point in time. Here in New South Wales, survivors have had to fight similar issues surrounding suppression orders in the past. Back in 2018, Saxon Mullins broke her silence five years after her sexual assault at the now-closed King's Cross nightclub, Soho. In New South Wales, sexual abuse survivors are granted an automatic right to anonymity, However, despite wanting to speak out, Saxon was subject to an additional suppression order that forced her silence. My name is Saxon Mullins and I'm the Director of Advocacy at Rape and Sexual Assault Research and Advocacy. Um, I uh, came forward with my own story of sexual assault um, a few years ago in 2018 um, and have been working in the advocacy space since then. When you see a government introduce laws like this, there sort of is no other avenue than to think they either don't understand how these laws affect survivors and how they come into play in all these aspects, or they don't care. Survivors for them were an afterthought to drafting this law, and that's just not good enough. And we want survivors to be able to speak out without the fear of fines or four months in jail. The failure to consider survivors when drafting this type of legislation isn't new. We've seen the same laws overturned in Tasmania and the Northern Territory in recent years, but only after similar campaigns were launched. The impact of these laws on survivors of sexual abuse, even if they are reversed relatively quickly, is significant. We know that throughout the criminal justice process, survivors are really relegated to the role of a witness. They aren't able to freely tell their story in their own words. Instead, they can only respond to questions that are very targeted you know, and trying to elicit specific pieces of information. It's the first opportunity that survivors have to freely tell their story, You know, potentially name an offender in certain circumstances and to be heard in their own words. Those things are so crucial to regaining what is lost by sexual violence, that is, power and control over our own lives and bodies. I think the nature of sexual assault is that it takes people's power and control away from them and it can also silence their voices already. So when you have legislation introduced which erects further barriers and which further silences survivors, this is actually an extension of the original abuse and it's an extension of the trauma. In Victoria, not only have survivors been stripped of their agency to decide whether they choose to use their name, 
but they also must seek permission from the offender if they wish to go through the courts to reveal themselves. Aside from the obvious trauma this leads to, the process can be very costly. Saxon's experiences highlight the need for survivors to be free to choose whether or not they want to be identified, rather than default to an almost forced position of anonymity. For me, you know, being able to tell my story um, and speak out about the experiences that I had, not only with the assault itself, but with the experiences with the court and experiences with the police and everything that follows after that was really important in my own healing around this event. As far as the process for amending this legislation goes, Dr Bergen says that without proper consultation with survivors and advocacy groups, we're likely to see the same fundamental mistakes repeated when governments are developing policy. It needs to be meaningful consultation. It's not enough to just, you know, have survivors in the room and act as if you are going to take on the advice of of these, you know, affected communities. You need to actually have engaging, meaningful discussions that actually shape the policy. Without that, it's just smoke and mirrors. There's a GoFundMe page where you can um, help fund the court cases of these survivors to have these gag orders lifted on their own names to be able to tell their stories. Um, Sharing the news articles and the let us speak hashtag is always really good to make sure the Victorian government knows that no one thinks this is okay. No one is all right with these changes that they've made and it's it's not good enough to just sort of slowly, oh, we'll try and find a solution. This, This needs to be changed now. If you'd like to speak to someone about sexual violence, please call the 1800 RESPECT hotline on 1800 737 732. Fight against these changes, you can donate to Let Us Speak's GoFundMe page. Your money will help fund court cases of survivors. We'll tweet out that link too. Don't go anywhere because up next, we're chatting to Oliver Costello about Indigenous management practices ahead of the next bushfire season. Stay tuned. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Back chat, your alternative to talk back. It's the first week of spring and already we're preparing for our upcoming bushfire season. We saw firefighters conduct backburning around Sydney last week while the New South Wales government accepted the recommendations of an inquiry into our last fire season. With our bushfire season becoming longer and more deadly, it's clearly something that needs to change. Even with tens of thousands of years of experience, Indigenous communities have been largely excluded from states' fire prevention, management and recovery strategies. We're joined by Oliver Costello from the Fire Sticks Alliance Indigenous Corporation to gain some insight into traditional fire management practices and how they can be used in future bushfire seasons. Hi, Oliver. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Thanks for having me. Oliver, can you please tell us about your experience of learning about traditional bushfire management practices? Sure. So first I'd just like to start by acknowledging country. I'm a Bundjalung man. I'm a Bundjalung country. I just want to acknowledge um, this country and our ancestors and also um, our elders um, here and across everywhere where everyone's listening as well. Um, So my experience is, um, like I grew up in Bundjalung country, in largely areas that had been cleared and were, you know, and rainforest is a big um, forest community where I where I come from up here. So fire wasn't a really big thing when I was young, but as I got older and started, you know, living in um, areas where fire was a bit more of a, um, a bit more prevalent, I started learning more about it. And particularly when I was living in the Blue Mountains, you know, the high intensity fires that, that we've seen there in the recent decades, started thinking more and more about it and how the old people 
managed fire. And then my mother married this old man from Arnhem Land, and he came down, and I started learning more about how um, his family and community up there um, and other communities use fire to manage the land. Um, and then, yeah, not long after that, unfortunately, that old man passed away, and I didn't didn't really get to follow that journey as as well as I would have liked to. But not long after that, I met um, Victor Stephenson um, and started working with him and um, the Kuka Taipan um, community up in Cape York around looking at reviving cultural fire management. And then from there, it's just been an amazing journey of discovery and, and connection with communities all over the country. With the with the weather getting warmer, we're set for another long bushfire season. What can we learn from Indigenous communities about how to prevent and manage bushfires? Yeah, so the, the, the key thing that we want people to understand is that you, you, you've got to care for country um, to be able to, you know, live sustainably, you know, in a healthy relationship with the land. And so our old people, you know, over thousands of years learnt um, from, you know, like our ancestor fire law teachers like lightning and birds and and other um, interactions between fire and the environment that if you burn in a particular way, fire can have a really positive impact on managing, you know, like food and um, other resources, you know, biodiversity, um, other sort of important environmental values. But if you if you don't use fire or use fire in the wrong way, you can see some really devastating impacts. Um, and so as we saw last, um, last summer, but also those bushfires started much earlier on, um, you know, uh, in uh, in August. Um, and so, if we don't, if you don't do that landscape management um, that old people did, and you know, and you, 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 if you burn the wrong way, um, you see these catastrophic events. And so, it's really important for people to understand that there are there is knowledge and techniques out there that we can we can use to try and mitigate you know you can't stop fire completely and we don't want to stop fire completely in the landscape um, it's really about having healthy fire regimes and if you manage the land in a particular way you can build resilience um, to, to bushfires and, and other um, threats and what we're seeing through climate change is you know like drier hotter windier periods you know and uh, and in lots of areas land's not being managed probably so there's a, there's a lot of fuel and um, a lot of um, in, a, in unhealthy country um, and so, yeah, we're going to see more dangerous um, events in the future. So we've really got to start to get that, that cultural land management in place if we want to start to um, adapt and, and manage for a better future for not just us, but also all the plants, animals and places that we hold so dear in our identity as Australians. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Swetha and Shami. We're speaking with Oliver Costello from Fire Sticks Alliance about Indigenous fire management practices. Now, Oliver, in the wake of the bushfire inquiry, the New South Wales government has accepted recommendations for increased cultural burning as part of the as a part of their fire management strategy. Were Indigenous people consulted in these findings? Yes, we were. We um me personally and um, the Fire Sticks Alliance that I, I represent um, and other Aboriginal groups were engaged um, and, you know, we we wrote a submission to the inquiry through the, you know, the, the um, inquiry leads, Mary and David's, you know, like in, engagement with us. So, we were, you know, we were very grateful for them to reach out because it's sort of a new thing. Um, you know, it's only in recent times. I've the first Fire Sticks project I initiated when I was a you know a university student and I was doing a leadership program around sustainability. At the time, there wasn't much respect or engagement with Aboriginal people around fire. And over the last ten years or so, we've, that's been building. But um, 
yeah, that the inquiry, you know, like it's great to see the recommendations. I, you know, I would have liked to see them go further, but um, we, we, you know, we appreciate that they're identifying some of those key issues that we've been advocating for around recognising that cultural fire is a part of a broad Aboriginal land management framework, and that really, you know, government and, and other land managers and um, fire agencies really need to step up their engagement with us and support Indigenous-led. Um, fire management are not just, you know, more of the same, which is really not solving the problems that we have around us, obviously. So how does Fire Sticks empower Indigenous communities and use traditional practices to manage bushfires? Yeah, so Fire Sticks is really built off the, the back of uh, developing a community practice. And we've been really, you know, like the the methodologies that we've that have driven our community practice we've been, have, were developed through the... Um, Leadership of Dr. Tommy George and Dr. George Musgrove that both passed away sadly, um, you know, in the last few last um, few years. And um, but driving that kind of like level of like sharing knowledge, community-led mentorship, being able to understand that like all different country has different fire relationships and local custodianship is critical for that. But we have these shared principles where we can, you know, through knowledge sharing, through understanding. Um, different relationships, you know, the, the, the kinship between plants and animals and people, we can share that knowledge and we can revive um, cultural fire management practices in places where they haven't um, been able to continue due to colonisation. Um, so Fire Sticks is really about driving that change throughout, yeah, building that recognition and, and, and getting people to understand that this is not a new story, this is an old story that's actually been developed through people's connections to land and the, the pathway forward is about rebuilding those connections and being able to understand our roles and responsibilities um, as custodians of the land. I really, really love that. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Oliver. We'll be sure to share all the links um, to make sure our listeners can support your wonderful initiative. Thanks very much for having me. That was Oliver Costello from the Fire Sticks Alliance talking about our upcoming bushfire season and Indigenous fire management practices. You can support Fire Sticks and their work through donation and by following them on their socials, which we will tweet out um, all across our own socials. So check that out. Well, that's all the time we've got for the show today. Another big thanks to our producers, Natalie Sekolovska, Eden Faithful, Millie Roberts, Vanessa Lim and Nicole Ilya Goyeva. And thanks again to our guests, Aminada Kontabija, Nina Fennell, Dr. Rachel Bergen, Saxon Mullins and Oliver Costello. We'll catch you next week. But before we do, we're going to play a song. What are we playing? Yeah, that's right. We're probably, you know, this is probably the best news of the weekend. SZA is back after her hit Ooh. album from 2017, Control. We've all just been waiting for her to make her uh, her comeback. And 2020 may have been saved. She's uh, put out a new music video. This is called Hit Different by SZA featuring Ty Dolla Signs and the Neptunes. You guys have a great weekend. Bye.